Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 56 for September 7th, 2006. Your questions, Steve's answers. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway. On the web at www.astaro.com. And by Visa. Safer, better money. Life takes Visa. Ladies and gentlemen, it is time to talk security once again with the king of all things secure, Mr. Steve Gibson. He was up in Canada last week with me, and we said farewell to Amber, and he sat on my bed with his sock puppet and wept his <laughs> crocodile tears. For people who weren't there, Leo, this is sounding very strange. <laughs> yeah, you have to listen to Frank yeah. Lynn Harris's uh, Tech File podcast, because we did a podcast in my hotel room with, with uh, Steve. Uh, you were great, and Mike was there from Command N and, and Amber and Frank and me, and it was a fun we podcast. Just yeah, it was, we really just sort of podcast. hung out. Yeah. Um, but uh, it was Amber's last week, and uh, Steve said, <laughs> it broke my heart, I'm never coming back. There's nobody to hug. <laughs> you can hug me, Steve. <laughs> okay, never mind. <laughs> Forget I said anything. We're going to do a Q&A. It is mod uh, four. Yep. And uh, mod four means uh, divisible by four. So episode 56 is divisible by four. If I remember my grade school math, lots of questions from listeners all over the world. Listen to security. Now, anything you want to catch up with, uh, with our sandboxing from last week or. Um, we're going to next week. I want to do a review of uh, essentially a comparative review of the VMware products and of Microsoft. Several people okay. have written in when we were talking about VMware saying, Hey, what about Microsoft's virtual PC? Because it's free too. Right. And it turns out that VMware has a server version, which is also free, even though what I've been talking about and what I myself have always used is their, is their VMware workstation, which is not free so it's like okay I, I really need to like figure this out because there's been a lot of interest raised in this whole notion of, of creating virtual machines to operate in securely so right. we're going to do one more episode on the whole sandboxing VMs for security topic right. um, and I got a really neat note from a listener uh, actually about Spinrite that I'm, I want to read next week I don't have it here in front of me so I'll, I'll track it down because it was Good. just it was, it was a perfect little a perfect little experience all right well let's kick off with a question number one john from piedmont california he says back in episode 51 uh the that was the uh, vistas virgin stack episode you guys right. were worried about bugs that semantic engineers had found but those had already been fixed in the later betas and now of course we're in release candidate one or might maybe even release candidate two i mean we're getting very close to the final version of vista and he's also read uh, that microsoft is opening vista to hackers they actually offered copies to 2,500 hackers at the Black Hat convention just so they could pound on the OS before it's released. Well, all OSs have bugs, says John. Microsoft's doing everything it can to remove them. Isn't isn't that enough? Isn't Microsoft re re behaving responsibly? Um, I would say yes. 
I think that Microsoft is doing what it can. My concern, and and really the whole thrust of our of our talking about Vista's Virgin Stack, was was really to drive home some some sort of philosophical and theoretical aspects of security. For example, I'll remind people that Microsoft opened Windows XP's to hackers also. And Windows XP was a catastrophe right. from a, from a security standpoint. So so the idea of of over some relatively narrow window of time of telling people, okay, everybody pound on it and see what you can find. That that isn't the model for the way security problems are found. You know, there. You know, if if it was, Microsoft could do that, right. or Microsoft would would solve those problems. Right. The the thing that finally made the difference in Windows is when Microsoft finally started running the the software firewall by default. Suddenly, everything changed because even though ports were open behind the firewall, they were no longer exposed to the outside. And, I mean, had that been done from the beginning, we would have had none of those Windows XP worms that were such a problem in, in, in the beginning. So... So philosophically, Microsoft finally made the right decision to to be running a, a personal firewall that blocks incoming traffic by default. And but it's not and, gonna, I, you know that's just that's nice. Of course, there were a lot of security patches too, but it's not just that that's going to make Vista secure. And I'm sure the firewall will be turned on in Vista. Well, and that, that's what's going to make this such a party for us. Um, there, for, for example, Microsoft has said that they're building in a peer-to-peer technology by, by default, which will be running by default. Oh, that's be, nice. So it doesn't yeah. matter if you've got the firewall turned on, you've got a server. You'll have something that it has built-in NAT traversal that allows incoming contacts. So, mm-hmm. I mean, and, and, and we know, for example, that that. Even if you had a connection to a remote location, if you've got a brand new stack that has not had, you know, all the bugs pounded over, uh, pounded out of it over time, there are going to be problems. And so what was so illuminating for me was to see that Microsoft, and the reason we call that episode the Virgin Stack, Microsoft was repeating all the mistakes, well, many of the mistakes, which had been already made and fixed 20 years ago so, at the, in the beginning of Unix Internet stacks. So you're saying even, oh, yeah, of course they're patching those as time goes by and a lot of them have been patched. But the fact that they even made them again is not encouraging. Right. Well, the fact that they that they made those mistakes is essentially it proves the point that a a brand new stack written from scratch is going to be a problem. Yeah. It just it's going to be a problem and and we'll find that happening, I'm sure. And we'll see so, how much of a so, problem soon. So Microsoft says they did this because they needed to start again. I respect them f- for not dragging their old code along forever and, you know, adding patch on patch and feature and glomming things on. I mean, certainly starting over, knowing now what they wish they had, they can build it. So so that's the good news. The bad news is there is a, is a security cost to doing that that we're going to be spending a lot of time talking about in the future. I, I There's just no way around it. That's good. It just gives us something to talk about. Yeah. If it weren't for that, we wouldn't have anything to talk about. <laughs> 
Dave uh, Rosendahl asks from Michigan regarding episode 45. We were talking about the hosts file. Can you password protect the host file? Yeah, I, I put that in because th- there have been a number of people who have asked the question. And I wanted to talk a little bit about the about the use and misuse of the host file. First of all, there are ways you could protect it. For example, if you used, uh, uh, assuming that you have an NTFS partition that supports Microsoft's security um, policies, you could you could make the file writable only by the administrator. That's a good and, idea. Yeah. And then, as we recommend, run as a non-administrative user. Then if something that you ran by mistake, like, you know, script in a browser or a program that was doing something behind your back, any such program would be locked out from being able to modify the host's file unless it went to much greater hmm. extents to acquire, you know, a, a so-called privilege um, elevation of, of, of some sort. And there are ways to do that, but it's just, it's much more work. So, so, so there even the, now, let me ask though uh, the the host file. If you're not running as administrator on a normal operating system, you wouldn't be able to modify it anyway. You wouldn't have to change the permissions on the host file. It just wouldn't be accessible because it's a system file. I don't know about uh, it on it, Windows. I don't know what it is. Well, that well, that's exactly the case. However, most people who are not security conscious are already administrator. Exactly. Right. right. So exactly. don't run as administrator for sure. <laughs> yeah, and. And, and so the, the 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 real issue is clearly someone wants to, per, to password protect the host file because they're concerned about malware modifying parts of their system. Well, if you've gotten to that point where malware is in your system, then you're really already in serious trouble. Right. I mean, it's it's like it's I don't want to say it's too late. Certainly, you there's there's malware that doesn't modify the host file. So, having a modified host file could prevent that malware from from looking up the 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 domain that it's trying to find uh, trying to phone home to and could confuse it and still give you some protection. On the other hand, there is malware that does know about the host's file, and we've seen instances where malware, for example, is changing domains for antiviral companies or or putting entries in the host file for antiviral companies and even Microsoft trying to prevent you from updating your patterns to identify that very malware which you've just acquired in your system. So we know that there is malware that does modify the host file. The best you can do is, and again, the the thing that's frustrating for people is everyone wants security to be black and white. It's just not. I mean, there's just, there's nothing about security that is absolute and black and white. It's a matter of, of using layers of protection because it's it's how, for example, we've recommended multiple spyware utilities rather than just one. Using three is better because there, there will be some overlap, but there'll be some some programs that one will see that another won't. Similarly, the hosts file is another is a good thing to do, but it's not absolute protection. It, you know, the phrase absolute protection is it, it is a um, a misnomer. I mean, it just it, it's an oxymoron in security. It doesn't exist. So, in general, you should think of the host file as like one more useful, good thing to do, but not ask it to provide more protection than it really can. 
fundamentally, if it's if there's bad software in your system, you're already in trouble, and then you really can't trust anything that happens from there on. Um, art in Washington D.C. is juggling. And he's not a juggler. He's considering remote access options for his users. He writes, first of all, he's having a policy to use VNC over a VPN to securely allow access for my end users, access to their desktops from home. A good idea. Uh, and here's the details. He wants to allow a thousand. He's got a thousand or so users. Yeah. That's a lot of seats. Uh, access to his network, the business network from home. They have purchased a VPN, but they're concerned that their home computers might have viruses naturally. In fact, the chances yep. are if you have a thousand home users that you have a Almost certainly that there's you, you got viruses. a few in there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're worried that the remote access will make improper downloads of sensitive data too easy because they have consultants that come and go. A nice solution seemed to be to give the users uh, some kind of desktop sharing to their local machine from home, since the only thing going across the network should be bits of screen pixels. It seems to be more secure, albeit slower in performance. I guess that's why he's thinking about VNC. This would also solve the issue of having to purchase and install applications on the home machine. VNC is rumored to have security flaws, and the other products go to my PC, go to meeting, require fees. Also, an interesting one is Web Huddle. I haven't heard of that. A Java no. open source screen sharing tool. However, it seems buggy. He's got he's got a quandary, doesn't he? Since many yeah. of the users are still on Windows 2000, the remote desktop feature of Windows is not available. I don't know if that's the case. Um, and we do have a hundred or so Macs. Any ideas or comments? I'm just uh, I'll throw something in. You can yeah. use remote desktop with Macs and Windows 2000. It's the host machine that has to be uh, a Windows. Well, in fact, if you're doing it on a network, I don't think even even that has to be a Windows XP. Uh, well, and Windows and Windows 2000 server will will be will, is, is able to run terminal services, but yeah. not but but not the the non-server version. So W so Windows 2000 professional, I think it's called. Well, I'm, I'm not, no, Windows XP I, Professional is the server, but I think anybody can be a guest on there. Anyway, that's yes, what, you, you're able to run the client from any kind, yeah, of from machine. any including a Mac. So, yep. so that's uh, answer one of that. I guess really the bigger question is: uh, is it possibly secure doing what he wants to do, VPN to a well, VNC? Yeah, the reason I I, I I thought this long question was really interesting is that it does it it uh, sort of more from from a from a policy or, or philosophy standpoint you know the idea being what he wants to avoid even though he's got VPN technology already and you know certainly for he's got some serious VPN technology if he's got a thousand users who are able to use this that, that you know that's a nice big system his his idea is he he doesn't want to use the VPN simply to allow remote um, telecommuters to to connect in to the corporate network and be a peer on the corporate network for the reasons he states you know if there was a virus then the the virus could you know crawl up that wire essentially what this means is you know as we know about vpns that anyone connected to the v, the corporate vpn their computer is is for all intents and purposes on the corporate network and so for him, he doesn't mind the machines that are physically located in the corporation being on the corporate network. Obviously, that's what they're plugged into. They have to be. He's concerned, and this is a really useful concern, about, about too carelessly extending those corporate that essentially the corporate network through the VPN to remote machines. Now, 
many people do that and for example you know it's what what you know for like personal users it makes a lot of sense to be able to access your home network while you're out roaming around so his alternative is to restrict what can be done through the VPN to running VNC and so essentially his question was given all of that if VNC has security problems would encapsulating it in the VPN solve those problems and the answer is yes good and simple, so simple so it's a, so it's a nice solution uh you know uh there are there are many different uh vnc variants some are inexpensive some are open source and free some are fast some have you know different features there's a bunch of them but by running them within your your existing vpn all security issues of like having a, a vnc server that's exposed and could be logged on to by malicious people all that goes away so it really is a great solution good there you go see fabian from bonn germany says after reading the windows vista security report by Symantec, you mentioned and again we're talking about this uh Virgin Stack issue in uh, Security Now 51. Something I, I don't understand. On page 5 of the report, wow, he got farther than I did, they <laughs> mentioned that Vista employs NAT traversal via technology called Teredo, or Tirado, and that it will make your Vista hosts that are behind a NAT router externally visible. I guess that's the uh, the peer-to-peer you were talking about. Yes, Steve. exactly. Since this is enabled by default, does it mean a Vista machine announces itself automatically to a public server in order to provide NAT traversal? Yes. Uh-huh. That's how it works. They say in the paper that many, in, quote, many individuals and companies use private addresses as a key part of their defense strategy and may find their Vista hosts externally reachable to an unexpected degree unless strict egress filtering is in place. In other words, unless my personal firewall blocks outbound traffic from that service, my machine will be visible on the Internet. Does it mean that your recommendation and Leo's recommendation of NAT routers are practically void with Vista machines, wouldn't it? Ah, really? Or does all of this only apply once I enable IPv6 in my network? Well, this is a perfect example of Microsoft uh, um, extending the functionality beyond what's been well proven. Or beyond what anybody's asked for. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, you wonder why they have this thing turned on by default. And the reports have been, this is on by default. I do want to say, though, this is still beta software. And I always hesitate to comment on beta software. Uh, because you don't know what they're going to turn on or off when they ship this thing. That's very true. And uh, although, even if, I mean, it's worse that it's on by default. It's it's a concern that people may be told to turn it on when they don't need to. For example, Universal Plug and Play, you know, right, is like right. on all the time. That was and, on and by default, too. Even when people don't need it right. and, are, and aren't using it. So I so think it's, it's unlikely, I'll be honest, given uh, how people feel about peer-to-peer and the fact that they're trying to get Vista adopted by businesses that hate peer-to-peer, that this would be turned on by default. I just don't find that likely. Uh, let's hope not, because yeah. it do, it does it 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 from 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 everything I've seen, it, it's exactly as Fabian suggests that Windows makes an outbound call, registers itself with a server. I mean, this is the way you know many other peer-to-peer systems work. You know, you and I are we both using... choose to run those. Exactly. You and I are both using Skype. When we run our individual Skype clients, it connects into the Skype server. Hamachi is the same way. All the Hamachi clients tie in 
into the central server, and that's how the clients are able to find each other. Well, Microsoft has developed the same sort of approach, but now it's at the OS level. It's sure, it's cool that this functionality that we're all using currently in individual applications will be subsumed by the OS as a whole. It just, it certainly is a concern from from a security and privacy standpoint. Yeah, yeah. Uh, wow. Okay. Well, we'll keep an eye on it. But again, I, I find it hard to believe that they would do that uh, by default. But you never, you never know with Microsoft. Yeah, how many years would, did, did we have Windows running services <laughs> we didn't just, need? You just never know. Yeah. Uh, but they've learned. I mean, I just got to think they've learned. Dave Matthews of Richmond, Virginia writes, I know you advocate using the administrator or equivalent account only when necessary. You just did again a few minutes ago. Right. I took your advice. Uh, he says, and made the change about five months ago. I'm surprised at how seldom it's actually needed. However, I did run into negative feedback around the water cooler regarding Microsoft updates. Our security patches installed automatically under a normal level account. If so, how can I confirm this on my machine? Well, that the, the, this question had a couple points that I really liked uh, to discuss. First, um, they for for what it's worth, the the. The Windows Update system runs as a system-level service. It, it, it's a classic Windows service running with system-level privileges. So it's not running in the user account. It's essentially running in the background as an extension of the operating system. It's the kind of thing you can turn off if you want to. If you go into you know the services applet, there's a list of all the stuff that's available in the system. Some of it can start by hand some is running all the time some you can disable some you can stop and so forth but it is running as at, with system level privileges which it needs because it's replacing core system dlls and making changes to the core os essentially on the fly although often you have to reboot in order to flush all the old stuff out and get the new code to load um the, the second part is um uh, I don't think security. I'll be honest. I don't think security patches are installed at all if you're until you run as an administrator, because uh, no other thing can, nothing else can be installed. You can't, for instance, try to uh, update your antivirus, try to install software. You can't if you're running as a limited user. Well, that's true. Except that Windows, uh, Windows. Um own security system, you know, built into Windows is running as a system level service. So I'm I'm pretty sure you can run as a non-privileged user. You'll get the little notice that that, that Windows that updates have been downloaded. Do you want them to be installed? You Boy, say yes. I think that's if that's the case, then it's not very. That's not a good setup. Um. Okay. <laughs> I just because it, uh, it's just too easy to spoof that. Um, well, and and and, and there's the, that is the the second part I wanted to bring up is that you know the the concern around the water cooler, as, as Dave puts it, is I mean this is why all of us oldsters, you know, the old computer guys who've been around, were really looking askance for quite a while at this whole notion of like giving up one more aspect of control to Microsoft. It, it used to be that you could, you know, voluntarily download these updates and install them when you wanted to and of course gradually we've been moved away from that model to the point now where you know this windows automatic update is on and you are you're berated if you turn it off and you're warned and cautioned and little little shields appear on your on your taskbar saying oh no you don't have updates turned on it's like okay fine you know just take take care of this for me 
So, so we've been incrementally losing more and more control over our system. And so that, you know, thus the water cooler talk, you know, he's, he's certainly right that, that we're, we are now victims to what Microsoft chooses to do with our systems. And of course, many corporations will you know, deliberately have this stuff off by policy because they want to vet and verify any of these changes that, Microsoft's make, that Microsoft makes prior to putting them onto their corporate-wide um, deployment. Here's, uh, this is from an MVP, a, a Microsoft uh, v- VP for Windows Security. If you set automatic updates to notify before downloading or notify after downloading, no updates will be applied and no notice will be offered to the limited user. But as soon as an admin logs on, the automatics updates icon will pop up. In other words, it won't install if you're a limited user. If you set AU automatic updates to the third option, that is automatically update, right? Then most updates will automatically install for a limited user and automatic updates will also force the limited user to reboot if necessary. Yep. However, service packs which require a license agreement i.e. SP2, will not automatically install for limited users. So if you want to install a service pack, you'll have to log in as admin. I think if you run as a limited user, it would behoove an admin to come in from time to time and, and log in. Or it would Although be it, to log in as an, as an admin from time to time. Yeah, I, I think that the typical model would be, for example, in a corporate environment, if they were allowing Windows updates to occur, then and and the users were, were running as a non-admin user on the machine, then they would be happening in the background. People turn their computers off at night and turn them on in the morning, and with that morning reboot, everything gets updated. Except for the stuff requiring a license agreement except a major service pack deployment right, right. right and that's again only if you have the full automatic updates turned on if you have notify in any way turned on it won't do it right so i even you know, when i uh, when i have users running as limited user i make sure that periodically they log on as an admin and do system update and update their antivirus cuz even if microsoft will update nothing else will update right so you've, you, I mean, a limited. That's, I mean, there are a lot of drawbacks, unfortunately, to running Windows as a limited user. It's not easy. Yep. But it's also the only safe way, I think. Well, it, it because it does restrict. Not only does, does it restrict you, and the whole point is, it restricts any programs running in your session. That is, any, for example, malware or spyware or something. They're they're similarly restricted to the to the changes they're able to make to the underlying OS. And and what's really annoying is there's all sorts of ways around that. I mean, it's it's sort of a it was a good idea, but it was a faulty implementation. One of the things we're really hoping for is much more robustness in in this regard from Vista. See, in my opinion, no uh, system files should be changeable unless you have an admin login, period. Right. Uh, regardless of it. I mean, I guess it's somewhat protected because it's running as a Windows process, you know, Windows own process. But I don't buy it. I think well, it, it's just should, it's just not safe uh, unless somebody has an admin password for system files to be modified, period. Yeah, I think. But, but you're the expert. I'm just, I'm just saying. I'm look, and I'm looking at, at Unix in particular. If you don't have a, 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 a administrator login, you can't change the system file. I don't care what happens. And, you, and, right. and the operating system can't either. Although well, and, processes yeah. can run as an administrator, I guess. Yeah. The, 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 the real problem is Windows is so complex now. There are so many ways around things. I mean, the fact that debuggers are able to open up... Right. Uh, 
open up other processes and modify them means that you know there really is no real isolation among right. processes right anish or anish writing from google mail asks is it possible to use the hosts file to redirect sites to display an image file a jpeg for instance this would look a lot nicer than the 404 errors in place of banners on websites I got a kick out of this because clearly he's he's implemented the hosts file approach that, that we've talked about, and now when, when he Get brings big up great X's exactly, uh, and the answer is no, it's not possible. Uh, there you, you there are alternative approaches. There are various types of filters you could run. Well, wait a minute or, now. If you if you relo- re, you're redirecting it typically to localhost one twenty seven right. zero zero one. If you had it, you'd have to run a server. But if you had, but it doesn't have to be a fancy server. If you had a minimal server running, it could take that and and put up a default display. Yes. Well, the problem would be that it would have to be clever enough. I mean, there yes, there are ways around this. For example, that server would have to be clever enough to accept any request for a, a an image of any name and return something. Right. No matter because, what it gets, it always gives you a a, a pretty picture of a sunset. <laughs> So instead right. of red X's, you get a sunset. Si- sized to fit the uh, available space. Oh, good uh, point. Yeah, presumably. it gets a little complicated. It, it really does get complicated. There are filters that can be run, but just the host file itself, it's just going to give you a little yeah. red X's. Scott Burr of Beaverton, Oregon, observes that for anyone... Uh, whoops, I lost it. For anyone, like almost everyone... <laughs> Let me let me let me see if I can understand what he's saying. For anyone, like almost everyone, who has a lock, uh, key lock in a door for security, worrying about someone breaking into your computer system at home or your office becomes a secondary thought when they can break into your place and take it away with them easily. I don't understand what he's saying here. Well, I mean, well, um, it, it's sort of this. Yeah, it, it it actually this is what Scott wrote, but I understood what he meant and I liked it because it. It talks about the real difference with with cyber crime versus physical crime. I mean, we all know. Oh, he said you could take the hardware with them. Yes. So who cares if you've got it secured? Exactly. I get it. Exactly. And 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 what Scott's missing is is the fact that the the, the fact that it can be done over a great distance with relative anonymity and in the dead of night well okay maybe not or in the middle in of the, the day rather in, in, <laughs> at, at noon exactly um d- you know it, that's it's what's it's, scary that's what's really the difference i mean we all have homes i've got a lock on my There's door no such thing as a secure home period. i've got gl- i've got glass windows right i mean all you have to do is throw a brick through the window yeah. and now you have gained entry there so have to be a bunker Yes, and 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 the point is, I think that that we understand the limitations of physical security, but in order for someone to be trying the front door or throwing bricks through windows, they're physically exposed to capture. Plus, they can be. It's a limited subset of the universe that can do that. Right. This right. You, your system can be broken in from into from anywhere in the world. And a, a, a potential intruder can be scanning vast numbers of systems. It'd be like, you know, throwing bricks through everyone's window at the right. same time. Right. You know, so so I, I, I guess the point is that, that there, there really is a difference in the cyber aspect of this. Uh, there was an interesting report in Government Computer News. I mentioned to you last week when we were in Toronto, Leo, that um, terabytes of data have been downloaded from secure government networks by IPs in China. Yeah. 
And then, like, it's like, okay, that sounds like a bad thing. Bad thing. Well, you know, those people get to stay, you know, behind their wall and, and you know, suck our networks dry. There's every evidence that there's vast schools of hackers in China. And, well, and apparently this notion of, you know, real cyber crime, cyber warfare teams yeah. being built. I think they're and, being trained. And apparently we've got some in this country, yeah. too. Well, right. For them against the Chinese. Uh, you know, if I look at my uh, uh, logs, uh, as I mentioned to, to you the other day, there's lots of people from China trying to break into my system using SSH and other other servers, always trying to crack it, always, constantly. Uh, yeah. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of attempts by hand a day. Yeah. Now, the, a good point to make in this, though, is if you have a laptop that you carry around, it's a good idea maybe to secure the data on the laptop. If you have stuff that's private in there, I'm thinking the Veterans Administration specifically, or many corporations. If you've got got important corporate data on your laptop, encrypt the, use TrueCrypt. True, I was just going to say, we, we, yes, we, we, if we've talked about TrueCrypt, it's a fantastic solution. It just needs to be done. Yeah. And, and you keep seeing people losing laptops with um, uh, uh, unbelievable amounts of really important and private data. And it's just like, well, these tools are out there. They're free, but we're not using them. No. So it's true. If somebody gets your hard drive, uh, you know, there a lot of the so-called encryption techniques aren't going to work very well. TrueCrypt will, though. There's no way they can get your stuff if you've done a good job of uh, your password. Right. So do it. Seems simple to me. Uh, I don't know whether you, Keith uh, Rochek of Cleveland, Ohio, says, I don't know whether you guys plan more coverage of firewalls and routers. I was wondering what your opinion is about SmoothWall as opposed to maybe a router you'd pick off the shelf at a computer store. Patrick Smoothwall, as you know, I'm sure, uh, Steve, is a, is a Linux uh, firewall distribution. Patrick loves Smoothwall. Yep, Smoothwall, and there's also Monowall is, right. is very similar. Um, I like the question because I want, and we've talked about it a couple times, certainly the advantage of, of pulling a router off the shelf at Fry's or Target or wherever for $49 is that it's, you know, it's there, you plug it in, you snap your Ethernet connectors into it, and you're done. Um, an alternative, though, that offers much greater power um, is the idea of taking a, a retired computer, which, you know, a 486 or, or something old, slow, and pokey that you're no longer using, and adding a second network card to it, or maybe even a third if you want to get some true DMZ protection, and you can then download um, an ISO image of a smooth wall or mono wall. These are all open source and all free, and you boot this CD and, and or install it on a hard drive if, if you want to go that route, and I mean, you've got a really full-featured solution. Yeah, so, I, I like it. I mean, there are some limitations i mean uh but i think in general and some of these by the way will run off firmware don't even need to run off a hard drive so you don't have to have moving parts it can be very quiet right um but uh well i guess there is no really you know limitation you just have to be a geek and willing to put some time into it yeah i mean it, it, it I, I think that's exactly it if if your mode is not to play with this stuff you just want solutions then just buying the the, the, the router appliance makes more sense but if you want to roll up your sleeves and and have more control have a, a like a powerful firewall that does everything you know bandwidth rate limiting and quality of service and you know and and able to log into it remotely and do all kinds of things you know essentially something like smooth wall or 
our modern wall is a full Linux system right. in, in which you can run anything you want. People often uh, used to ask us on the screensavers, my roommates use too much bandwidth. How can I limit them? <laughs> yeah. Smoothwall is great. You can run Squid or some, some proxy server on Smoothwall and, and, oh, you can just turn them right down. Yep. Tim in the UK asks, if I want to run a web server on the, quote, host, quote, PC on port 80 and a web server and a virtual machine also on port 80, which server will pick up the request? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Will they be, will they be battling? Is it possible even to do this? He wonders. Um, okay. No. Uh, if you, if you have two servers, normally what happens is a virtual machine that has networking capability is, is there are several ways it can be set up. One is that it's got its own sort of local network sort of a virtual local network within the machine, which allows the physical machine and the local machine to talk to each other. So if you ran a server in the virtual machine, then from your host, you could access the web browser on port 80 in the virtual machine using the IP address of this little virtual um, network that's all existing within the main host machine to 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 put the virtual machine on a on an ip that's externally accessible then you have a collision it is not possible to run two tcp servers that are both listening to a a, a given ip and port at the same time um and the um there's something uh the way the api works you wh- wh- when you're programming these you you say okay the, the a certain process is going to be listening for incoming connections and once that's been done any other process that attempts to do so will will return an error saying you know you can't listen there's somebody already on this port listening for those connections so um udp are, is a little bit different. You, there is a way to sort of share notices of packets coming in because UDP, as we've talked about, is not a connection between two endpoints. It's just the flow of raw packets. So it is possible for UDP services, multiple UDP services, to get notified of incoming packets and then you know, for them to figure out what they want to do about it. But not in the case of a web server. Only one application at a time can, can like, terminate the endpoint and, and receive connections. I've actually, in a smaller way, seen this happen with Parallels on my Mac and a CD-ROM. When you insert ah. a CD-ROM, if Windows is foremost, Windows grabs a CD and, and auto-runs it, and it's not visible to the Mac, and, and vice versa. Right. So... Uh, I guess kind of the generalization is, I mean, unless you have something like UDP that's specifically designed to, to be shared, in most cases, one of the other is going to get it and, right. uh, and, and keep it. And that's it. That's, that's, yeah, the, that's um, that story. You know, uh, Tim's question was, which server will pick up the requests? Unless he goes to some ex- some substantial extent, the external, the, 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 the server running in the host computer, the main machine... It gets priority. W- w- exactly. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it would be first in line. And then, you know, if he had a different IP assigned to the, to the virtual machine's web server, then then incoming data on that different IP would go to the virtual right. machine. And I so, think some, I don't know, but I would imagine some virtualization programs would allow you to pass the data along explicitly and say, you know, I'm running a web server, pass, pass the port 80 stuff along. 
Well, one of my projects uh, by next week's podcast is to nail down. I mean, I know VMware, the, the VMware workstation quite well because I've used it a lot. I've never messed with virtual PC. So I'm going to learn about virtual PC and we'll have a real, uh, a real head-to-head comparison between these. I'm a, I'm a big fan of this stuff now. You've really, you've really uh, won me over. And, well, and, and Parallels, uh, they've done um, a nice job. They've done a great job, and now that they're 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 supporting the the virtual the the hardware virtualization technology, the the Intel VT technology um, over on the Mac side, you know, you got Windows running at full speed on a Mac. I know, I love it. I, yeah, I just love it. I'm really we're looking at call for help. We're looking at buying instead of buying new PCs, buying new Mac Pros. Uh, which yep. are very, 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 very fast Macs and running Windows and Mac on the and using virtualization, whether it's Parallels or VMware, on the same machine, it'll it'll eliminate this whole need to switch from machine to machine. It's just all there. Yep. Uh, Chris Meisenzahl of uh, Rochester, New York, is becoming more and more annoyed with Zone Alarm, and he blames you. Well, I don't know if he blames you, but I blame you because uh, I wouldn't have known about Zone Alarm if it weren't for you. You you were the ones who uh, told us all about it. Yeah. Of course, we ever since have been telling the word about it, world about it. He writes, my question is regarding uh, software firewalls. I have two XP machines, one home, one pro, behind a Linksys NAT router. In addition, I've long used the free zone alarm. Never had trouble with it. No malware, viruses, Trojans, and so on. I also have an iBook running Tiger, but in the last few versions of Zone Alarm, they just it's becoming larger and more research-intensive. You've been saying that for a while. Yep. I'm beginning to wonder if a third-party software firewall is superfluous as long as I have a NAT router. And the XP firewall, also running AVG antivirus and AdWare SpyBot. What is your stance on this? Chris, I'm so glad you asked. What is your stance on this, Steve? Leo, do you run a, a software firewall? No. I don't either. No. No. I say on the, on the air all the time a NAT router is sufficient. It's not as capable as a software firewall, but on the other hand, it doesn't slow your machine down. It doesn't add to the compatibility woes. Or the uh, uh, or the sometimes uh, frustrating it, connectivity issues that a software firewall can cause, and it gives you ninety percent of the protection. Well, no force on earth could get me to plug one of my real main machines directly into the onto the internet without protection. I mean, it's just it's you know you measure the lifetime of a computer hooked onto the internet without some sort of protection in minutes i mean it's just there's just so much junk out there now um and it's the nature of this that there's a chance we don't know about attacks i mean there are there are we know that there are exploits you know the so-called zero day exploits which are discovered when they're being used rather than beforehand right so so i mean i'm i'm behind a nat router for my entire network and i have no firewalls on any machines and i've also never ever had a problem you know nat really is super strong technology now my and we'll tech talk sup- a little bit later about nastaro which is uh, you know a, a more secure a more advanced firewall but it's the same idea i mean it's a hardware firewall as opposed to a, a, a software on your machine well, in fact, uh, I, I, I was going to refer to Astaro um, earlier with our prior question, uh, the guy who was asking about Smoothwall, because Astaro is exactly that Same kind idea. of... It's a Linux exact, distro, yeah. Exactly. Um, but so you're not so something like that is not the same thing as a software firewall. You're, you're not saying use a NAT router in, in, instead of a hardware firewall. A hardware firewall would be even better, yes? 
Oh, I yes, and okay. and you you certainly want to have that. However, you know when I'm roaming around the country, like coming up to Toronto, I'm absolutely sh- I'm absolutely behind XP's software firewall when I don't have right. my normal hardware firewall in, in front of me. The the advantage the, of XP's firewall is it's it's small and it doesn't slow it down, so you get that protection. Uh, without without really compromising your system. Right. Well, and I mean the 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 traditional personal firewalls, uh, McAfee, Symantec, Zone Alarm, they really have become huge and bloated. I mean, yes, they do lots of things for you, and I, I don't want to suggest that people shouldn't be using them if they're comfortable with them. I, I would suggest though that people should not be afraid not to have them. If if the firewall is as is the case for for Chris who asked this question, if the firewall is becoming a problem, I mean you really don't need it. Now that said, the thing that the firewall does is it gives you a notification of software in your computer, notification and control over software in your computer that might be phoning home behind your back you know i mean that's the classic uh, experience i had early on with a beta of zone alarm that got me excited about the idea that is i you know i discovered something in my machine i didn't know i had so so that, that kind was a long time ago <laughs> it was a long time ago and zone alarm it was was version 2.6 smaller yes 2.6 was the one i that was like the sweet spot for zone alarm and so i would recommend i mean if someone wants a firewall look at Cario. the Cario personal firewall is if i were to use a firewall and, and install it on a machine that didn't already have one for example if i was using windows 2000 and wanted a, a software firewall, and because I was going to have to be using that machine out from behind some sort of NAT protection, it'd be the Cario firewall that I would install and use. Yeah, yeah, we've mentioned that before. It's yep. uh, and it's free too. So, yep, uh, very. It's a very good, very good program. Paul uh, Sanza from Louisiana writes: Whenever a new security issue is uncovered in XP, you can always find people complaining. And forums and news groups that Microsoft can't make a bug-free operating system. This is generally followed by a round of Microsoft bashing, with some defenders chiming in. I personally, says Paul, not me, feel that Windows XP or 2000 NT ME9895 is just too big to be bug-free. Well, that, that I'll agree with. Yep. And that newly discovered flaws should be expected. I, yeah, of course, everything has flaws. My question is, what's your view on this matter, Steve? Do you feel that Microsoft is lax with their OSs or that all those naysayers are expecting the impossible? I think that Microsoft, in, in this instance, is just the big target. I mean, they're, they're, they're easy to pick on. They, you know, everyone, uh, you know, well, not everyone, but a huge population of, of people on the Internet are using various versions of Windows. Microsoft, of course, has the problem that the flaws are being discovered in very old versions of Windows, which Microsoft is no longer fixing. So that's a concern. You know, we, we've, we've seen that 95 and now 98 have gone past the horizon of critical security updates. Uh, this was an issue that we saw at the beginning of this year with the Windows Metafile exploit, which Microsoft said we're not going to fix in the older machines. Turns out the older machines didn't have this problem. It, it, it occurred in Windows NT for the first time and moved forward. But still, the point is that that the older versions of Windows are not are no longer going to be fixed for the the critical security vulnerabilities. 
Um, it is the case, though, that Linux has problems, too. And the, the Linux code base has tripled in size over the last few years as its popularity has grown and as all kinds of new features and, and capabilities have been added to it. So, you know, if you look at any mature security list, you'll see problems with Windows and you'll see problems with Linux and with, with Unix and with OpenBSD and FreeBSD and all of these, you know, large and complex operating systems. So it, it really, it isn't it isn't correct and i think therefore not fair to single out microsoft as being you know worse than any there there have been policy problems with microsoft and i've you know we've talked about this often the idea of running un, unnecessary services without a firewall on by default and giving those machines to naive users. The advantage that Unix and Linux has is that they generally have more sophisticated users who understand what it is they, you know, what kind of OS they're sitting behind the wheel of, whereas Windows tends not to. So, you know, the 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 service pack 2 advancement in Windows XP that runs the firewall by default was a huge change and really made a difference for Windows security. Yeah, but I have to say, and I don't blame Microsoft at all, but it's an old operating system now. Uh, they made decisions, as you've pointed out, uh, back when security was not as big an issue, that have resonated throughout ever since. They can't change it because of a legacy software that you know requires uh, Windows to work in a certain well, way. It's a they, very difficult thing for Microsoft. Yeah, they wrote code. I mean, a huge body of Windows code is this old code from from before the dawn of security awareness right. at Microsoft. It's not their fault. Now, I do think that there is a bad. There is, frankly, some pretty bad programming. I mean, the, the the number of buffer overrun exploits in Windows is kind of staggering. You, yep. you if, think if, the, if there's a buffer, it can probably be overrun. <laughs> and and I, I, you know, we won't ever know, but I think that you, there's some culpability on Microsoft's part for not having better coding policies. Well, my, uh, Mark Thompson told me something the other day. We were talking about Vista's uh, virgin stack, and he said, well, it's not just the stack that's virgin. You know, Vista is completely rewritten from scratch. Right. And it's like, oh, uh, well, what? It, but, but, you know, if, if it, you know, for instance, um, uh, C Sharp, uh, Java, there are a great many more modern languages that are much more resistant to buffer overruns because they do range checking. Yep. Uh, and much of what Microsoft uh, does is written in C++, which has no you know, range checking. You can use a, a string copy and not care where that data goes. And yep. uh, apparently that happens a lot. So it's it's partly because they're using a, an older language that doesn't protect the programmers. It's probably more because they don't have good policies. I'm hoping, though, that when they start from scratch, that that's one of the things they implement, that they uh, there must be a switch in the compiler that says, you know, range co- range checking is required, is mandatory. I would hope so. Yeah. I mean, it's possible programmatically to prevent many, many buffer overflows, I think. I mean, I may be wrong here, but... Well, if you put enough encapsulation around the calls, you can do that. The problem is that programmers don't like to have those kinds of constraints on themselves because, I mean, and and, and C is the classic, you know... Pointer land. Exactly. You can write to any part of the memory anywhere you want, anytime. 
Right. And that's why we like pointers. <laughs> Wally Ferguson, and by the way, assembler is even worse. Wally Ferguson of Athens, Tennessee, which is what you use. I know. It, yeah. Is feeling yeah. a bit exasperated. I'm exasperated, says Wally. He writes, I've experienced quite a few problems with hackers and internet security to the degree that I couldn't even install and use McAfee and Norton. One problem compounded upon another, creating a third. I finally researched and cleaned my PC, finding, among other things, a rootkit. Gosh, Wally, I hope you reinstalled Windows from scratch. I don't think cleaning is going to do it. Authorities like Microsoft OneCare offer a solution for which I am appreciative, yet what can be done to prevent even their secondarily looking at my private files? Oh, Wally. Yeah. Well, you, your focus is wrong here, dude. Such as Word documents and personal information. This is not intended to sound accusatory. It's just an afterthought for an enterprising engineer who might decide to covertly use Microsoft capabilities for personal gain. He does raise a good point. You have to trust the security software that you use not to be bad. Right? Yes. You have to trust somebody. Well, well, you do. And, you know, he's sort of talking about, well, what if, you know, Windows had a backdoor installed? Well, then you're out of luck, dude. Yeah, and well, and and you know, and Microsoft is being sort of accused of this kind of behavior. I mean, you know, even I at the beginning of the year looked at the Windows Metafile exploit and said, "Wait a minute, you know, this allows images to run code, and this wasn't a mistake. It was, you know, it was a bad idea. We don't know that it was a backdoor, but it was, you know, clearly a facility." that appears to have been deliberately put into Windows for whatever reason, and, of course, they've taken it out, and that's a good thing. So I don't think Microsoft could survive a a true, provable you know example of their code having a backdoor you know there there there's some strings in the network driver i think it is or or somewhere that talk about an nsa key and it just it turns out that nsa is is a there there's an an acronym collision that's got everyone freaked out that the you know microsoft has installed you know a key that belongs to the nsa so the nsa can access our computers behind our back it's, a it's bad like choice of an acronym no, no 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 <laughs> all right uh, you know you have to look you use an operating system you use any software you're kind of trusting the vendor uh that's just the way it is although again this is the point that you often make about open versus closed source ah good point because with an open source system you don't have to trust you can you it, can you can verify yeah now most people don't they like they, they don't even compile the, the source right. themselves to binaries they just use the binaries but the the idea is there's many hundreds of eyeballs looking at this stuff and no you know no single bill gatesian sort of overlord that says oh let's put a back door over here right right i i the truth is i think if you're looking for security and for instance encryption there you've got to use open source software it's the only way you can be sure encryption doesn't have a backdoor but uh, you know uh that's or that's my opinion tr- trust trust the source or trust the source or trust the force luke if, if you dare yeah steve what a great round of questions some great stuff of course you continue to take questions what's the best way people can ask you uh, the best way is to go to uh, grc.com slash security now at the bottom of that lengthening page, which I'm going to have to organize now that we're, you know, we've got 56 episodes on it. At the very bottom of the page is a form that allows someone to just put a question in and press a button and it comes to me. <laughs> Great. And maybe your question will be next in uh, four episodes. Next week, uh, kind of a virtualization wrap up. Yep. And we're going to take a look at uh, maybe uh, some of the stuff that Microsoft's doing. Some specific feature comparisons, yeah. you know, when, when pe- pe- people are writing in saying, okay, 
Microsoft's virtual PC is free. The server version of VMware, and we got the player, and we got it, you know, blah, 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 blah. Which one should I use? I'm going to attempt to answer that question. Fair enough. The wonderful Steve Gibson. (laughs) Catch more of his uh, stuff on his website, grc.com. And that's where you'll find the 16 kilobit versions and the transcripts. That's also where you'll find the wonderful Spinrite, everybody's favorite uh, disk, hard disk maintenance and recovery utility. It is the greatest. But if you have any doubts, just visit the testimonial site, S-P-I-N-R-I-T-E dot info, and you'll see how many happy customers Steve has. It's it's, it's a nice feeling. Of course. Oh, I got, I, uh, as I said at the top of the show, there was a, a neat note that I received. I, I, it's, it's buried in my email right now, but I, I want to read it next week because it was just, it's from a Security Now listener who bought a copy just to support us, you know, which is like way above and beyond. Uh, and then needed it, and it really saved him. Good. Really neat. A nice story. And we also want to uh, thank uh, Astaro, because uh, they are, of course, our sponsor on this show. Uh, Astaro has been here since... They were one of our very earliest supporters, and uh, and I just, I just think they're a, a great little company doing some great stuff. If you're looking for security, the Astaro Security Gateway line of network security appliances offers complete protection from network, web, and email security threats. A-S-T-A-R-O dot com. By the way, Astaro has an opportunity uh, for everybody who listens. They're offering uh, people who listen to Security Now a free demo unit you could test to protect your network. You just dial 877-427-8276 or visit astaro.com and you'll get a free demo unit. They will ship it to your business or office in one business day. Uh, if you're ready for to step up to the next level of protection, 877-427-8276 or visit astaro.com. And we also welcome uh, Visa, our newest uh, sponsor. You've heard the Visa commercial already. You know, one of the things that's good about Visa is they is uh, they're and one of the reasons they want to be on security now is they're promoting uh, credit card security. And I thought I'd just pass along real quickly from Visa a couple of points that they've asked us to put into the uh, advertisements on the podcast uh, for um, credit card security. Now, I mean, I use I use a Visa because, uh, you know, I know that should anything go wrong, they stand behind it. I don't have to worry. But there are some things you can do to protect yourself. Sign the card, for instance, on the signature panel. If choose a good, secure pin that's secret and memorize it. Don't write it on the card. I don't need to tell the Security Now audience that, I don't think. Check your online or paper statements immediately on receipt, or if possible, monitor your account activity more frequently online. I do that. It's nice to have the statement online now. And, of course, keep your financial information secure, preventing access from even family members, friends, and neighbors. It's your stuff. Keep it private. And do shred everything before discarding. You know, most identity theft occurs not online, but from hard copy. The people are digging out of your uh, trash. Shred it. Yep. And you don't have to worry about it. Safer, better money. Life takes Visa. Steve, uh, we've wrapped up at a great episode, and I think uh, it's time to say goodnight. Once again, 58 and counting. 56. <laughs> 56 and counting. 57 is next week. Yep. Steve Gibson uh, from Irvine. Leo Laporte from Petaluma. We say to you, thank you for joining us. We'll see you next Thursday on Security Now. Security now.